morning. Uh, for those of you who are visiting, I am not Tim. I'm Wendell Moses. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of talking about you. We thank you for the examples in your word. We ask that you send your spirit to be with us here as we discuss what we have for today. This we ask that you be blessed and you be praised. Amen. Amen. Uh, There's some unfinished business from last week. Unfortunately, I spoke very loudly in the middle of last week's class. Tim was going through the how that Moses, even Moses, who was not a priest, etc., would go in the sanctuary. And I spoke up and said, well, the sanctuary tent or the meeting tent was outside the camp. That's in Exodus 33.7. And if you go through and look in your concordance for tent of meeting, or tent, and follow that through sequentially, I think you can get an idea of what was happening. In Exodus 33.7, it says that Moses pitched this tent of meeting outside the camp. Um, in Exodus 40, the next time we hear, see the, the t- title of tent of meeting, the sanctuary was completed and assembled. So sequentially, this is before the sanctuary was completed. So at first, the tent of meeting is described even before the ark and the sanctuary and everything else are constructed. If you appreciate Mrs. White and her writings, she speaks briefly about this in Patriarchs and Prophets, and Tim sent me a a quote from that in in his uh, email this, this past week. By divine direction, the tent that had served as a temporary place of worship was removed afar off from the camp. This was still further evidence that God had withdrawn his presence from them. This is after more rebellion and quarrels and whatnot, etc. He would reveal himself to Moses, but not to such a people. The rebuke was keenly felt, and to the conscience-smitten multitudes, it seemed a foreboding of greater calamity. Had not the Lord separated Moses from the camp that he might utterly destroy them? But they were not without hope. The tent was pitched without the encampment, but Moses called it the tabernacle of the congregation. All who were truly penitent and desired to return to the Lord were directed to repair thither to confess their sins and seek his mercy. When they returned to their tents, Moses entered the tabernacle. Again, that tent outside the camp. With agonizing interest, the people watched for some token that his intercessions in their behalf were accepted. If God should condescend to meet with him, they might hope that they were not to be utterly consumed. When the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle, speaking of the temporary tent outside the camp, the people wept for joy and they, quote, rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. Patriarchs and Prophets 327. I'm always intrigued by, um, we have this idea of what we know and sometimes facts get in the way. So, anyway. All right. Our lesson for this week was lesson number five, uh, from complaints to apostasy, and it just so happens that I'm assigned all the mistakes of Israel. Um, you know, the biggies, you know, when they got turned back and had to serve another 40 years and all that sort of stuff. So, Someone read for me Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2. Meanwhile, other of you can be turning to the memory text of um, Philippians 2, 14, and 15. When someone gets Deuteronomy 1, verse 2, if you don't mind 
reading it for us. There are 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Okay. Now, I don't know if this is just a parenthetical statement or what, but where is Mount Horeb? Anyone? Where's God's presence was? Where was God's presence? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. So Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai look to be the same thing. Okay? Where was Kadesh Barnea? Far to the north. Far to the north, which was close to? So they traveled from Mount Sinai to the borders of Canaan. And it, it says here that it was an 11-day journey. In 11 days, they got into this much trouble. <laughs> Seriously. You know? In 11 days, we have four chapters of, of big, big challenges. You know? It said even after three days, they started grumbling. Okay? So I, that, I just want to put that as perspective. In 11 days' time, they went from Mount Sinai, where they had been for a year, to the borders of Canaan, their promised land. In the 11 days, they had four rebellions. And they didn't even move for, for a week because Miriam was outside the camp with leprosy. Okay? Just a thought. All right, someone read for us the uh, memory verse. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless as sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay. Now, in my Bible, they had little footnotes, you know, these little things that if you, want to, if you think this is a good text, then you ought to go over here. Okay. And there were two texts they gave. 1 Peter 4.9, someone pick up that one. And the next text is 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. I'd like to read these three texts together. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Okay. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. 1 Corinthians 10.10. 10. And do not grumble at some dead and were killed by the destroying angel. Okay, so this is kind of referring back to the same bunch of crooks that we were just talking about in these four chapters and numbers. In the Amplified Version, do all things without grumbling and fault-finding and complaining against God and questioning and doubting among yourselves. Now, in 15 it says, and you will shine like stars. Why do stars shine? To illuminate something. To illuminate. What makes them shine? Okay, they have of their self energy or light. Okay? Or they're reflecting light if you consider the um, planet or whatever, you know. So they they're either have light or they're reflecting light. How easy is it to see the stars in a bright night or in downtown? Okay? Not well. It's only by contrast that they really shine. Will it make any difference 
if you know all the truth, but everyone's life is so disjointed that it's not evident. How much truth do the children of Israel have? How much truth do the Pharisees have? How much truth do any of us have? This week I had a situation in which um, a family was very upset with my care. Now I thought I had done outstanding job. On paper, I could say it was great. And so when my superior called me and said, listen... You need to bend over backwards and call this other facility to help them get additional care. It's like, wait a minute, if you want to do that, you do it yourself. (laughs) And he said very firmly, Wendell, you're telling me that just because you're in the right, you won't make a phone call to prevent a frivolous lawsuit? He's like, oh. I had done everything right, and if you look on the records, everything else, everything I did was perfect. Okay, I, I can't find. Go looking back on it, I can't find anything that I did wrong. Okay, but sometimes our behavior and my refusal to even be a good Christian guy downplays everything good that I had done in my entire record. What type of things are we not to complain about? All things. Now, wait a minute. This is getting a little close to home. Is this only the Christian duties that we're not to complain about? You know, potlucks. (laughs) Who gets to do deacon duty this week? You know, who has to lock up the church? You know, who has to pass out the bulletins? I did that last week. Don't ask me again. (laughs) You know, who serves on what committee? I am not serving on the nominating committee again. You know? I don't know any of those people anyway. Is it just our Christian church duties that we are not to complain about? I like to complain. This week was an evidence of that. And it has nothing to do, most of it had nothing to do with this place or what I was doing here today or next week or any week here in this physical space. Okay? It had all to do with what I did at a big building downtown. And um, it's humbling. For an exercise, sometime take 1 Corinthians 13 and write it out, but don't say anything negative. It starts out, depending on what version you're using, love is patient, love is kind, is not, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant. So you go through and put, positive statements in for those negative statements, okay? And just write it out. That's what you're supposed to look like, right? Yeah. And, you know, as Tim has mentioned many times in here, our thoughts do have physical consequences. You know, he has used the illustration of um, the PET scanner and how you can put someone in a PET scanner with a keyboard and ask them to play the keyboard, and that PET scanner will record their brain activity in a certain manner while they're playing a certain song. Then you take away that keyboard, and you say, okay, fold your hands in front of you. Now play that same song in your mind, and those same brain waves go across. Okay? 
Exactly. So, when Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, it has been said, you know, thou shalt not kill and all that sort of stuff, etc. But I say, if you think about it, it's just as bad. Well, it's maybe not just as bad. The guy hadn't died, you know. But it's just as bad for you, okay, as if you did it. And so... Um, What we think of is important. Turning to Sabbath afternoon lesson, I'd like for someone to read the first two paragraphs. When the pillar. Pillar of cloud lifted from the tabernacle in Sinai, and the priest set forward with the ark. Moses proclaimed, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. It was like a victory cry, and the vast hosts of Israel took to their journey with with good cheer. At last they were on their way to the promised land. Imagine what it would have been like to have having such a visible presence of God in your midst. One would think that something so clear and obvious before them, they so readily and willingly would have obeyed his every command as they journeyed toward the fulfillment of the promises made to their fathers long ago. Okay. I'd like for you to go back to that sentence, one would think with something so clear and obvious before them, they would so readily and willingly would have obeyed. Um, what's your thoughts about that? Amen. Amen. Yeah. If we just had the pillar of cloud here. Yeah. You know, I have, I have heard several Sabbath school teachers, especially in the youth division, wish they had some she-bears. <laughs> that would at least peek in the door when the kids were unruly so that they could get, get some respect. If we had a few more people fall over when the offering plate was passed, you know, because they didn't put in what they promised, maybe our offerings would pick up, you know. But now, wait a minute. That's how you feel the presence of God would be? This is saying... With something so clear and obvious before that. I'm looking, at, I'm looking at concrete examples. With a pillar of cloud, would we act any differently than the children of Israel did? One would think so. <laughs> One would think so. Okay. Do we have any examples in the Bible where that kind of idea is not held to. The Pharisees, when Christ came to earth, God himself came to earth. God himself came to earth. Pillar of cloud or talking face to face with Okay. In Luke 16, Christ gives a parable. We all hate the parable because we're Adventists and we believe in the state of the dead being one thing. In the parable, it talks about Lazarus talking to Abraham and other beings and all that sort of stuff. But at the conclusion of the parable in Luke 16.31, Christ says, if someone from the dead would come back, it wouldn't be any different than what they have right now. Now, he was speaking to the Jewish nation, okay, Jewish people, who had grown up in a culture of accepting the sacred writing. He wasn't talking to someone who had never heard the Bible and never had read it and everything else. And so I think there is a clear difference there. But he said to this group of people, if at 
if someone was raised from the dead, or an angel from heaven came and spoke, it wouldn't be any different. Do we have any evidence that that is true? Yes, because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Ah, he raised Lazarus from the dead. If you um, turn to John 12, someone read for us John 12, 9 through 11. Much people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. Here you have someone in your midst who has been raised from the dead, and you don't believe what he represents. And so you're willing to kill the guy who says something about God that you don't want to believe. I think we can be pretty hard on that group of people from one perspective. Um, My mama said that to me a lot. Gosh, you know, they had all of these very evident signs. But by the very nature of us saying they had all of these very evident signs, we're affirming that that really happened. We have the story of the Israelites in its entirety, and we still don't get it. We have the story recorded of Jesus' life, what happened with Lazarus, in context, and we still don't get it. So they were just seeing the story, and in a sense, we're still in an an unfolding story. But they were even more in an unfolding story. They didn't have all of the context that we have. And we still don't get it. So I think that's an example of our ability to deny it. Exactly. Well said. Yes. Some of these people even denied that there is a resurrection. Even after Lazarus came back from the stink. Okay. There's another hand. Yes. I agree with what she said. Plus, they've been in slavery for 400 years. And so I don't think their master said, okay, we're going to let you worship today. Or, you know, we're going to. They, they didn't care about their faith. And so they were under great depression. And in a sense, they're coming out of great darkness. And so we're way ahead of them. And we have a lot less excuse than they did. They did. Um, I don't think we do any better than they did in similar circumstances. There's a comment over here. Yes. All of this to me drives me to a certain text about how the human heart is deceitful above all things. You've been reading my notes. Yeah. Yeah. Has there ever been a generation like ours, okay, that has more access to God's Word? They gave me a new cell phone through my employer, and unfortunately, they haven't hooked it up yet. I mean, it would call, but I couldn't page anyone, which in my environment, if you can't pay, get a, a pager, you're non-existent, you know. Then the next thing, like, I don't have any phone numbers here. I have something like 3,000 phone numbers in my old gadget, in my bag, and I'm carrying around an old gadget in my bag because this one doesn't have any contacts. I don't have no clue. But I now have in my hand... 16 or 18 or 20 English translations of the Bible. Okay? I now have in my hand 
the entire writings of a prophet from the 19th century. At any point, anywhere I go, I can turn it on and with a few keystrokes access anything. Has there ever been a generation that has been blessed like ours? Incredible. When I think of the people who had one copy of God's word in a strange tongue chained to the church pillar, only readable by one person in that place, and then that were um, totally incomprehensible, you know? Um, I went to um, Paris with a homeschool group, um, and we went to Chapelle something, and it was gorgeous stained glass. You know, you, you go in the police station, you end up in a church. I don't know how that works, but anyway. Um, you um, talk about, you know, that's a strange metaphor. But you end up in this church, all these stained glass, and the stained glass is all the stories of Scripture, the main stories of Scripture, because no one else could read. And we have a generation that has access to God's Word, that knows more about God's Word than any other generation, that has had more revelations that we have, you know. Your description of all the past um, doesn't shake my foundation, though, with them or us, because they forget the power of the Holy Spirit to really get through doesn't matter what generation. Right. I think what he said is absolutely right. I think what the other gentleman over there said is kind of mind-boggling to me, though, too, because this week I just found out that an acquaintance of ours um, has had her third child this week. She's never been married. It's a different father for each child. And this father has already moved on. It's a heartbreaking situation. It doesn't make sense to me on one hand, but I can tell you if I sit down and talk to her, from her perspective, like he was saying, after 400 years of slavery, after the slavery that she's been in, it makes perfect sense to her. And I think that's where we have to look at. We have to recognize that we've been enslaved too. We're in the same situation. And we can make perfect sense in our own minds, out of darkness. But what I'm encouraged by is that God's Spirit will meet us where we are and lead us to where He needs us to be if, if we let Him. Okay. Let's turn to Sunday's lesson about the sin of ingratitude. And I had spent some hours this week looking up the effects of diet on our minds and what it does to our messenger RNA and all that sort of stuff. And traveling here to um, the church this morning, I thought, guess what? I never put any of that in my notes. I'm not going to talk about vegetarianism or what you eat or anything like that. I, I had several hours worth that I could have you know, presented, and I'm sure that some of you could present more. But I would like to talk about this, the shaded area on the bottom of that page, there's a saying, be careful what you ask for or pray for, you might get it. What does that mean and what can we learn from it for ourselves? 
What do you think about that? That statement. Does God give us bad things? He'll let us have our way if we insist on it. Okay. We have our own. Okay? He, he does that. Freedom of will. Does he ever give bad things? Sure. Sure, no. Okay. Just a second. All right. Keep those thoughts. Someone said sure. Yes. First king of Israel. First king. So, one idea is that he gives us our own, own bad things. Okay? The second thing is that God gives... How do you describe it? Second best. Second best. So he gives us the illustration of first king. First king, Saul. Any other illustrations? Quail. Quail. I don't know. When I grew up, I like I, I quail. It was good stuff. <laughs> divorce. Divorce. He gave us divorce? He gave us parameters before divorce. Ah, divorce parameters. Okay? Because divorce was always happening, it was just abandonment. Exactly. Okay? All right. Yes? You know, this man and I, it sounds like we're contradictory, but actually yeah. saying the same thing. Okay. Saul was necessary. They demanded a king. God didn't want him to have a king, but he gave him, and it was a gift to him because Saul was the fulfillment of everything bad. And they needed to see that to see what God really wanted for them. So he gave them what they needed What's to wake them up. Was Saul bad? No. He, he ended up kind of bad, but was he bad when God gave him? Right. He, yeah. he God, had all those seeds within his heart. God knew what was happening. That was yeah. wasn't God's choice. Yes. The way I see it is that like God has plan A for us, and this is the way He wants us to go. But we don't always want to go down that road. But sometimes we want to take plan B, and so He'll be like, "Okay, this is what you want." I'll you know, I'll help you, I'll lead you to plan B. But sometimes you want to play like, plan C and God just kinda like goes with it. So and also for the record, as it pertains to Saul, the Bible says that Saul was a choice young man and a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. So Saul didn't start off with that. Um, there were some there were some things that he did that led him on the course that he eventually take, he took, but the Bible clearly says that he was the best and the most choice of all the people of Israel at the time. In talking about the story with the lost donkeys, he came back and prophesied. Exactly. He was a prophet. Okay? Yes? Interestingly enough, we're saying, you know, Saul didn't start off bad. None of us start off bad, as it were. In a bad situation. Okay. We're born into sin. That's Sin came before we did. Yes. I think it's important to understand that Saul himself, as the brother read, was not depicted as a bad person. God understood that this idea of being having a king was not a good idea. He was trying to give them, as the sister said, plan A. They wanted plan B. Turns out, at this point in their history, we're all about 6,000 years in slavery. 
And everybody basically was born into slavery. And when you have somebody who's trying to grant freedom to all slaves, there are times that you have to give the slaves what they ask for so that they can find freedom some way, somehow. And he does that. Yes. I think in all of these situations, um, all of these different examples that we've given are examples of God continually giving of himself. He continually presents himself to us. And these are examples of, of him offering himself, offering himself as king, offering himself as deliverer, as provider um, in these different situations, and then us rejecting that. And him you know, trying to show us, okay, well, this is what you want. I want you to go this way, but I'll let you see what I'm trying to prevent you from, from experiencing. Um, so it's not that God gives us bad gifts. He continues to give the greatest gift himself. Yet when we reject him, um, we, we, we reject um, his initial plan, his, you know, these gifts that he gives, um, we get that second best is uh, what we do to him. We are respectful. It's unrespecting. My dad used to tell me that uh, if I didn't work, I didn't need it. That seemed pretty bad to me. And, but he said, God cursed the ground. That seems pretty bad to me. If we don't work, we'll grow around. It's the only way forward. Yeah. Every parent here recognizes that looking back over your own parenting history, we did things to our kids that stand alone might seem bad, but for our kids, they were good. Tim's illustration of um, immunizations. You know, you take your child, hold him down, ah, but you're, you're giving your child what he needs. It may not seem from his perspective at that time, whatnot. The other thing I think is God gives us things to prevent us from having other consequences. And those may not be the ideal thing, but it's to prevent us from destroying the situation. And my illustration of that is it's after the resurrection. I, just, just on that point of second best, uh, Jeremiah 29, the Bible says in verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished, I will visit you and perform my good, good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think of toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place which I cause you to be carried away captive. The point here is that... <clears throat> God has a desired end for us in mind. There is something that he wants for us, but because there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death, we choose something else, and then God allows that to happen so that we can eventually come back to him. Okay. One of the illustrations I use for this, for the, the third thing, is prevent other things from happening. It's a resurrection. Peter has gone to go back fishing. He's discouraged. He's gone back fishing. And Christ seeks out the disciples by the sea, and they're out fishing, they've had a lousy night, and he does several things for them at, during that episode. One, he provides them a boatload of fish, which provides their families with some getting started money for their ministry. Okay? 
Number two, he provides them some direct direction. You know, hey, don't worry about him. He, whatever happens to him is going to happen to him. I'm, telling, I'm talking to you, etc. But he also provided them a meal. Okay? Now, this is after the resurrection. And he provided them a meal. And the meal consisted of fresh fruit and veggie burgers. <laughs> right? No. He provided them with fried fish. Why did he provide them with fried fish when he knew that veggie burgers and, fr- and fresh fruit were better? <laughs> if they were provided with a veggie burger and a bowl of fruit salad, I can guarantee you they would not have heard a single thing he said. Okay? God works with us within our circumstance. Exactly. He comes to us where we are and what he gave to the children of Israel wandering around in the Egypt desert was different than what he has given us. The Bible many times is written to someone who lives in a different house, speaks a different language and whatnot than where we live today. And sometimes we have no clue how to read it. Right now, our church is co-sponsoring a family from Iraq. They live down on Reed Avenue. It's a mother, father, and three, three sons. Um, I've been spending some of my time down at their apartment. Um, I've got an Arabic class in my passenger seat of my vehicle trying to learn how to say hello and goodbye and pleasantries and whatnot. So at least they don't feel totally at a loss, whatever. But, you know, every day when I see Majid, he says, coffee? I don't drink coffee. I can't stand coffee. I grew up in a household that loved coffee. Okay? I grew up in a meat-eating farm family. Until I was 16, I ate more meat than probably I should have. My arteries are about that big around now. But since then, I've been a vegetarian. I was turned to vegetarian by a, a non-Christian track coach. And so, yes, I believe very strongly in vegetarianism now and everything else. But I go down to see Majid, and he wants me to come up for coffee. I know that if I drink coffee, I'll be like this, and I can't do my job. And so I consistently have had to say, no, Majid, I will take water. And he gives me juice and cocktail. And we have had to come to a truce because his culture is he cannot drink coffee unless I'm drinking coffee. Okay? He can't. And he doesn't like water, so when I, he gives me my, my water, he will not drink water because he can't stand it. It makes him sick in his stomach. This cultural, ongoing struggle, I'm trying to help them out, but I don't know how much help it is because a lot of what he's seeing is just a strange, bizarre culture in which I can't drink coffee. Okay? So um, I think we need to be careful when we read the text that we apply it to who it was written. It was not written to Wendell Moses, 21st century, United States, whatever. Okay? So, anyway, yes? One of the things that's been run through my head as we've been talking about this is that we look at these examples of the children of Israel being given manna and they want quail. So they're given quail. They want 
They, they want a king. God says, uh, you'd be better off if I lead you, so he gives them a king. They, they want, uh, he wants to drive the Canaanites out ahead of them with the hornet uh, and the fear of him. They want to fight, so he allows them to fight. He gives them guidelines on how best to do it. The thing that, that is humbling to me is this, that we, we as humans have the ability to change God's mind. We have the ability to sway him and, and change the direction that he wants to take us in. And it's only, only a God of love would allow that. A dictatorial, arbitrary God would say, it's my way or the highway. Well said. You know, the, this whole story of how he dealt with these rebellions, incredible. Just incredible. If you truly believe that God is a God of fire and zapping, there wouldn't have been a soul left. Absolutely. Yes. There's a principle behind that the examples that we get in the Bible can be broken down to find a principle involved that can be applied to us 20th century you know, Americans that we can use. And I think what God was trying to do to the children of Israel, like the, uh, the quail, when they... Uh, he had to give them manna. Uh, they had, uh, I think somewhere it says, they lusted for the flesh pots of Egypt because they missed their meat. God's principle was he wanted a relationship with these people. If he would have just kept on forcing them to eat something they didn't really want, like you said, they wouldn't have heard a thing he said. So he met them what they needed so he could develop that relationship with them. And I think that's the principle behind it. God gives us things, maybe not the best thing for us, but he meets us where we are to develop that relationship with him. And over time, we grow, like the New Testament says, you know, we put away the childish things and we grow spiritually. He would never do that if we, if he had just given us things that he thought we wanted, uh, and we would just turn them off and say, you know, that, I'm tired of this, I don't want to hear anything you have to say. So I think the principle is that he's meeting us where we are uh, so that he can have that relationship with us. I think a second issue to that is that what is written in God's Word is filtered by our broken minds. And here, we, in reading these four chapters, we have a lot of things that went on, and yet we pick out, I think the devil picks out for us, certain key passages which we hone in on, which are the zap passages, and that develop an image of God that he is not like. He truly like. If you really look at what happened over these, la- uh, these four chapters, it's incredible how long-suffering he was, how gracious he was, and everything. And yet, when we come out of it, we read it as being a stern, vindictive, zzz, God. Yes. Exactly. And so, really, if we want to get to the source of the matter, figure it out, we've got to go to the red letters the one who came straight from the Father to tell us what God the Father was like. There's an easy text to remember, Matthew 7 and 11. It's easy to remember. Because it says, red letters, it says, Your Father who is in heaven will give what is good to those who ask Him. That's a universal principle. Well said. So, yes. If your child asks for an egg, you don't give them a snake. That's what God says. So, sometimes when we want something really bad, and we persist in asking, even if it's not what we need, sometimes God will give it to us so that we can quit focusing on that and start looking at what He really wants us to see. 
Or it could be that because it's such a wrong thing, God needs to let, let us suffer the consequences of getting what we want so that we can see His way is the best way. But we, we do that with our children all the time. I mean, we, we parent wrong half the time because we want to please our kids. Don't get me started on that. I, I work in the kid business, and I just dry oh, whatever. Yes. We did send the quail, and people did die from eating the quail. Okay. So we have to face the fact: some did die. They wanted the quail. They complained enough. God sent it, and He caused them to get sick, is what the Bible says, and they died from eating the quail. But they didn't have to eat it. Didn't they still have manna, and they could have went and made bed instead of eating all the quail? Yeah, but, but the point is, He sent the quail. He sent the quail. They chose to eat the quail, and how many of them died? Now, I grew up eating quail, okay? I don't remember ever getting sick on quail. I couldn't get enough, you know? Yeah, they're pretty small, and a mom only gives you one, you know? It said that they got up to six bushels. 62 bushels to 100 bushels, depending upon how you calculate their omer. 62 bushels per person was the, the least they had. Nobody ever said that just because, okay, we've asked God for something, He gave it to us, it's now a good decision. There are consequences to the decision, no matter what the outcome, no matter what we've asked God for, whether it was right or wrong to begin with, there's going to be a consequence to that decision. There was a guy here when I was going to college here. It was um, Elder Francis. I don't know how many of you know Elder Francis. But he used to have this illustration. He says, who believes that milk is okay? And, you know, there was always a smattering of people who didn't think milk was okay. He'd say, okay, is it okay to drink a glass of milk? Is it okay to drink two glasses of milk? And he got one guy up to seven gallons of milk in a day in my class. Okay? Somewhere between one glass and seven gallons, I can assure you there's a point where it becomes not so good for you. Okay? But just because God gives you 62 bushels of quail doesn't mean you need to eat them all raw that day. Okay? People could have gorged themselves on manna if God had allowed it. God told them to collect only what they needed. I just like to make two brief comments. In the story about the 70 elders being chosen, they then started prophesying. Many times we hear that word prophesy, and we speak we think of it in a certain way. In the Hebrew it was Naba. And essentially it means in prediction or simple discourse. They were preaching. When we get down to Acts 2.17 during Pentecost, when the, the Holy Spirit fell, they were prophesying. They weren't foretelling the future. They were telling what God had done for them. When the latter rain hits, and Joel 2.28-32, and your young men will dream dreams, and old men, whatever, etc., and you will prophesy. It doesn't mean that God's people be running around telling the future. It will be they will be telling about him because he's been active in their lives. Okay? And I think often we have the word prophesy used in a very narrow manner. 
And the second thing I want to mention is that in Wednesday's lesson, at the beginning of the lesson, it uses the text out of Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 23, where it said that the children of Israel asked for spies, and then they, they avoided using the text Numbers 13, 1 through 3, where it said, God sent the spies. How gracious is it God that will take the blame for our bad decisions and still work with us? Incredible. It's like the topic of who killed Saul. Who killed Saul? Who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? If you look at the text, did God do it? Did Saul do it? Or whatever. I think it's incredible that God has taken the blame for what we do and then kept leading us closer to him. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for your word. May it burn in our hearts. May we walk with you. May we be changed in our lives by beholding you. May we honor you in what we do this coming week. And thank you on this, your Sabbath day. Amen.